We are starting a new series today called Breakthrough, and um, this series is going to run alongside a 21-day journey of prayer and fasting that we are stepping into as a church. And so if you haven't been here in the last week or two, here's what that is. Starting tomorrow, October the 4th, um, uh, for 21 days, we are calling our church and our people to a time, 21 days of prayer and fasting, seeking God's presence and seeking spiritual breakthrough. And I'm excited because this really is something we've never done before. Not that we've never taken an opportunity to fast, but nothing like this, where we've set aside 21 days uh, to fast and to pray. It's something we've never done before, and it's because we want to experience God like we've never experienced Him before, and we want to pursue Him like we've never uh, pursued Him before. Now, those of you who have registered for the 21 days uh, of prayer and fasting, so you've, you've signed up and you know what you're going to do, uh, let, let me just ask you, and it's okay to be honest, how many of you are a little overwhelmed by 21 days, right? Feels like a bit much, you know what I'm saying? It's a long time to go without chips and salsa. That's all I'm saying. That's my deal. That's me. That's what I'm struggling with. And so, um, like, my truck just knows how to get to Dairy Queen. I don't tell it where to go I just look up and I'm ordering another blizzard and I don't know what happened. And so um, it's going to be it's going to be a battle. All right. It's going to be a battle. Uh, and so it, it can feel overwhelming to wade out into 21 days of prayer and fasting. So a couple of things uh, that, I, that I want to remind you. One, uh, the fasting guide is going to be incredibly helpful uh, because one, you're going to realize there's there's four different ways that I can go through this, um, through these 21 days, and we can all kind of find a place where we can get in somewhere in there. But even above that, I want you to remember this 21 days is not about what you can do. It's about what God wants to do in you. It's about what God wants to do for you. This is, I don't want to get to, this, to the end of this 21 days and look back and go, I made it. Whoo! Look at what I did. I want to get to the end of this 21 days and I want to go, God has changed me. <laughs> he has spoken to my heart in a way. He has drawn things out and he has given me his presence like never before. So I want you to know, if you feel a little overwhelmed by 21 days, know this is about what God wants to do in you, not what you have the willpower to accomplish. And those of you who looked at 21 days and go, that's the reason I ain't doing it because there's not a chance. The same encouragement to you. This is not about what you have the willpower to do. This is about what you are open to allow God to do through you. So here's my encouragement. You can still register for the prayer and fast today. Um, it starts tomorrow. So grab one of those fasting guides that's uh, out at the welcome desk out at Guest Central and get registered. You can scan that QR code. There are a ton of resources to help you over the next 21 days, and we want everyone to be a part of it. And so today, uh, similar to last week, but in a different way, today is very much about us preparing for breakthrough. We want to get ready to meet with God. And as we look forward to these next 21 days, um, as a church, we want to position ourselves to experience Him and receive all that He would have for us. That's what we want to do. And so I want you to grab your Bible and go to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. This is a, uh, a, a powerful passage in God's Word that helps us really gain some understanding 
of the preparation that is required to experience the power and the presence of God. I want to give you some background to Psalm 24. David wrote this psalm, and he wrote it um, to celebrate the return of the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. The Ark had been away from the city some 20 plus years, and now having retrieved the Ark and prepared themselves, they are bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem, into the tent of meeting that David has prepared. And listen, this really is a moment of spiritual breakthrough for the people. Here's why. Because where the Ark was, God dwelled. His, his manifest presence dwelled where the Ark of the Covenant resided. So before they brought it into Jerusalem, it spent three months in the house of a man named Obed-Edom. And it said Obed-Edom experienced unbelievable blessing in his life while the Ark was uh, at his house. And so this is a moment of spiritual breakthrough for the people. And you can see it in 1 Chronicles 15 tells the story of this. Uh, 2 Samuel 6 tells the story of this, and what you see is David and all the priests preparing for the ark to come in, for God's presence to come, and this was an incredibly important moment for them because now the people of God were going to experience his presence there in Jerusalem like never before. So this is a moment of spiritual breakthrough for them, and so let's look and see what David wrote in preparation for this moment. Psalm 24. Would y'all, let, let's stand and read this one. We don't do this very often, but you're going you're gonna to sense that need to just affirm and honor the Lord and his word as we read through this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place. He who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation because such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob's. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, you O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Amen. Father, for the next few moments, we fix our eyes on you. The king of glory, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord of hosts. And we ask that you would speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys be seated. Thank you for that. I, I, I want you to take a special notice of what David says in verse 1 and 2. In verse 1 and 2, he says, The earth is the Lord's and the, the fullness thereof and, and uh, the world, those who dwell within. For he's founded it upon the seas, established it upon the rivers. What is David doing? with those two verses. He is establishing for us who God is. He's establishing that God is the supreme creator, that he is the one who spoke everything into existence. He is the originator, right? 
He is uh, the sovereign God of creation so that God set the plan for creation, executed the plan for creation, and is the one who sustains creation. That He owns it all, right? That's what he's putting out. So having now, in, in the light of God's sovereign ownership of the earth and all of us who dwell in there, in the light of God's supreme position as creator, David asked the question and he wonders, what kind of person has the right to stand in the presence of this God? What kind of person gets to do that? Right? So verse 1 and 2 give enormous weight to uh, the question that he asked in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Having seen now and acknowledged who God is, the next question is, who gets to be in his presence? God, look, look at this God. Who, who gets to do, who gets to draw near to him? Who gets to know him? Who is able to experience him? Who is fit to do this? Right? So several years ago, and then uh, this summer as, as well, Carrie and I uh, went on missioncation to Colorado, and we spent one of our days uh, doing some uh, mountain climbing. And, well, we did, well, let me take that back. When I say mountain climbing, I think of Sylvester Stallone, you know, hanging off the side of a mountain. We didn't do that. I didn't have any rigging on, right? We went uh, uh, hiking on a mountain trail. That's way more of what we did. And, um, but what we noticed is as we went, even this summer when we went, and you thought we would have learned our lesson, and we did to some degree, but not good enough. And so we were going on this trail, and we started to notice all the other real hikers looked way different than us. Way different. <laughs> right? Like uh, their clothes were different. They had on different shirts. They had on these like khaki kind of safari looking meant to be outside pants. They had on hiking boots and they had these cool backpacks with this like tube that wrapped around their neck and shot water into their mouth. And, and uh, we were walking around and we were like, uh, we, we don't look anything. We're up here in basketball shorts, t-shirts and sneakers. And we ran out of water two hours ago. Something, <laughs> we're in a bad spot. Hey, it was a four hour hike. Hour one, we were bone dry. All right. And we're up here, we, so we, I was like, well, I'm in the wrong shoes, we're in the wrong clothes, we didn't bring anything to snack on, we just assumed one little bottle of water was going to handle it all the way in, all the way out, and uh, physically, like, we weren't prepared, our bodies weren't ready, our legs were hurting, our feet were hurting, and... Um, Man, it was hard to breathe. If you've ever gotten up, legitimately walked up on a mountain trail, you discover up there, it gets hard to breathe. Uh, even when you're good at breathing, and I got strong breathe game, I promise you. And uh, I'm an expert, and I got up there on this mountain, and I was struggling. And uh, I was panting, and man, we were in a bad spot. Now, here's what I would tell you. We made it, because I'm not a quitter. And um, we made it. And we, we, we drug our kids up there. They were ready to bail very quickly. And, uh, but we got to the top of that mountain. And uh, actually, my boys basically skipped up the mountain and were waiting for us by the time we got there. Uh, but we, we, we got up there, and, uh, and it was beautiful. It, it was unbelievable, right? We, it, it was just it was amazing. But what we discovered was this. Uh, because we weren't prepared, that experience was less enjoyable 
it was more grueling, right? Getting up the mountain was hard, but going up that mountain unprepared made it much more difficult for us to experience what we wanted to experience. And listen, as we begin this 21-day journey of pursuing God through prayer and fasting, we must rightly prepare. We must rightly prepare because we're anticipating and we are desiring for God to move. I want to know him more. I want to worship him more deeply. I want to experience his power in a fresh way. But listen, any any disobedience, any lack of holiness is going to diminish our experience and limit our access if we don't deal with it. Right? And that's what David is going to reveal so that today and the days that follow, this is the time where I think it is perfect for us to do an honest evaluation, to do a spiritual inventory, right? To really get honest about our lives and where we are spiritually, being willing to look at our sin, um, being willing to ask questions like, um, where are the areas of disobedience in my life? Where are the areas of unforgiveness or bitterness? Where are the areas that I am not submitting to the Lord? And that's hard work, but listen, sin hinders us from encountering the presence of God. And there's no way around it. It hinders us from encountering the presence of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 tells us that without holiness, we cannot see God. Without holiness, we cannot see God. And if we want to experience the Lord, if we want to um, experience that life in him and that life from him, we have to pursue holiness. That's God's desire for us. God desires that we would be holy. And um, the sin undealt with in our life quenches the work of the Holy Spirit and hinders his presence. So this morning, I want us to wrestle with the question for us then. So what does it look like to prepare for the presence of God? What, is it, what does it mean for us to make ourselves ready to meet with him and experience him? How do we become one who can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place? And David is going to give us the answer in verse 4, because what we see in verse 4 is a call to deal with the sin that separates us from God's presence. And so I want to give you four words that we're going to discover in uh, verse 4 today that are going to help us begin to prepare. The first is this, we must deal with the sin in our actions. They're all going to start with an A because I'm a good Baptist. So we're going to deal with the sin in our actions. Psalm 24, verse 4, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands. Clean hands. Now, it's important to know David isn't talking about going to the sink and, and washing your hands, right? That's, that's not what he's talking about. David is dealing with the outward actions of our life. He's dealing with the outward actions of your life. This idea of clean hands is, is dealing with what we do and the, the choices we make and the, the places we go and the, the things we say so that what we begin to see right now is drawing near to God demands an outward purity. Demands an outward purity. Purity in our actions. 
so that everything that we do and make should be pure. Everything we're grasping to and holding on to and clinging to and striving for with our hands must be pure. That's what he means by we have to have clean hands. He's dealing with those outward actions. Now, this is true in my life, and I bet it's true in your life. Every outward behavior, every action of our hands, it begins somewhere. It begins with the attitude of our heart, right? That's where it begins, and that's the second word, and that's our attitudes. We've got to deal with the sin and our attitude. Who gets to ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So now we see that drawing near to God not only demands an outward purity, it demands an inward, an, an inner purity, purity in our thoughts. This is dealing with our, our motivation so that everything we think, every reason that we have for doing what we do must be pure. This is an inward purity that plays itself out now in an outward cleanliness. That's what you see here. A pure heart toward God is evidenced with clean hands. So here's the point. Um, it means this, that any matter of my hands is never just a matter of my hands. Every matter of my hands is a matter of my heart. Are you with me? Every matter of my hands is a matter of my heart. So that if my hands are clean, if my outward actions are pure, it's an evidence that my heart is right toward God, that it's aligned with his desires and surrendered to him. But let's just, let's acknowledge something. Um, we are really good at managing the outside, right? We're really good at it. Many of us are, are really good at keeping the outside looking clean while the inner heart is not. I, I, I came home uh, it was either yesterday or, or the day before, and I walked in, and our, our living room is normally uh, not clean. And um, <laughs> because of, now everything in it is clean, like, but it's laundry, right? There's laundry on, on furniture, and, um, but it's all clean. We just don't know how to fold. And so um, I walked into the living room, and there was no laundry in there. And I was like, Amazing. I'd started walking around in areas of the living room I'd never walked in before. I was like, look at this. This is awesome. And then I opened my bedroom door, and there was every garment of laundry that we had ever owned washed and just sitting there. And I was like, oh, there it is. There we go. That's why the living room's clean, right? We had moved everything out of the living room to make the living room look clean, but we hadn't really dealt with the issue, right? And that's what many of us do. We we deal with what is seen and what is unseen goes undealt with. Um, but when, when David says we have to have clean hands and a pure heart, he's talking about there has to be dealing with the things that are unseen. Bitterness is not seen. Jealousy is not seen. Coveting what someone else has, that's not seen. Unforgiveness is not seen. Sins of the mind are unseen. And yet David said, those have to be dealt with. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, clean hands will not suffice unless they are connected with a pure heart. True religion is heart work. Yeah. 
We may wash the outside of the cup and the platter as long as we please, but if the inward parts be filthy, we are filthy altogether in the sight of God, for our hearts are more truly ourselves than our hands are. And the very life of our being lies in the inner nature, and hence the imperative need of purity within. The pure in heart shall see God. All others are but blind bats. Now that last line didn't feel sweet, I'm going to be honest with you. But it's true. This is why God throughout Scripture gives such emphasis to the condition of our heart. It's why he reveals to us in Jeremiah 17 that the heart is desperately sick. It is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Why would he tell us that? So that we weren't blind to the true condition of our heart. It's why in 1 Samuel 16, he reminds us, man looks on the outside. But God looks on the heart. This is why in Psalm 139, David begged God, search my heart. Search in that spot that is beyond what others see. Get into those places that nobody sees. That's why Proverbs 4.23 tells us that we are to guard our heart above all else, for from it is the wellspring of life. We have to deal with the sin of our hands and our attitudes um, because a pure heart produces clean hands, right? A pure heart also, by the way, produces a pure devotion to God. This leads us to our next word, which is affections. We have to deal with the sin in our affections. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Does not lift up his soul to what is false. We are to have a heart and a life that is committed to seeking and serving God alone. God on the throne of our heart. God alone at the center of our desires. God at the, at the seat of our affections. He's dealing with an issue of what we love and what we pursue and what we live for. And listen, in preparation to meet with God... There needs to be an honesty about who gets our affection. There's got to be an honesty about what is getting the affection of our souls. You ever ask yourself those things, those hard questions? What is it that I really love most? What is that? Well, that's hard work because my flesh goes, Jesus, right? It says, oh, you got it figured out. Don't, don't dig too deep around in here. You're fine. What is it that I really love most? What do I think about most? What do I prioritize in my life? What truly gets the heart's affection and the mind's attention? That's what we're dealing with when he says, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. When he talks about what is false, you can put right in that place the word idols. That's what he's talking about. Who does not lift up his soul to idols, these empty things that we give our devotion to. And really, part of this preparation is an honesty about where and what the idols are in our life. What are the empty things that are getting our devotion? You know what's funny? Idols never look like idols when we first make them an idol. <laughs> they just don't. Because most of our idols are good things. 
But we've elevated them to the best thing. And in elevating to the best thing, we've actually diminished their influence and what God could do through them in our life. Because idols are always going to promise life. They're always going to promise truth. They're always going to promise value. They're always going to promise satisfaction and contentment. And they will always deliver lifelessness. They will always deliver worthlessness. They will always deliver what is false. Why? Because they are not the highest value. David said, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What is he saying? He is establishing God as the highest value. Is that true for you? Is that true in your life? And the only way that we can avoid pursuing what is false is to begin pursuing what is true. To begin pursuing God, to pursue God and, and his glory first in all things. That's why Jesus said, seek first what? Seek first what you want. Seek first what feels good. Seek first your comfort. Seek first your financial security. Seek first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added to you. This is why Paul cries out to the church in Corinth, whatever you do, it doesn't matter what you do, whether in word or in deed, what you eat, what you drink, do it all for the glory of God. What is he saying? He is saying set God as the priority of your life, as the highest value of your life, and go to war with your idols because as they die, God gives life. As they are taking out of, taken out of that place where they never belonged, Many of these good things that we've elevated to the best thing actually become a real blessing in our life. They become a real blessing. God suddenly can begin to use them the way he wants to use them. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to what is false. This takes us to our last word, which is we have to deal with the sin in our ambitions. Our ambitions. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. This is dealing with the idea of swearing for false gain or being deceitful for selfish ambition. Again, we see this inward purity manifesting itself in an outward cleanliness, meaning a heart that is lifted to God alone that is not lifted to what is false, is going to lead to a mouth that gives glory to God alone and does not swear deceitfully and does not pursue selfish ambition. It's going to lead to a mouth that does not speak deceitfully. We are to be lovers of the truth. Amen? Thank you, Richard. For the rest of you, we're to be lovers of the truth. Amen? Come on. But our culture would tell you, everybody gets to have their own version of that. Everybody gets to decide what is true for them based on feelings, their experiences. This is going to be my truth, and I'm going to define 
everything, including God, my relationship with Him, my understanding and receiving of His Word, what I know of the Holy Spirit, the church, my family. It's all going to be filtered through what I have determined is my version of the truth. But I believe when God says we are to be lovers of the truth, when Jesus said God is seeking a people who will worship him in spirit and in truth, he is saying there is a truth. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And as you set your feet on the bedrock of my truth, you begin to move away from a life that needs deception. You begin to move away from a life that needs to prop itself up for selfish gain and selfish ambition. Now, I know that's kind of heavy for 9.30 in the morning. I get it. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And who can stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Well, can we just ask this question? Who among us is that? Who among us is that? I'm out, right? My hands aren't clean. Neither are yours. My heart is not pure. Neither is yours. Our, our lives do not wholly pursue God. We are distracted. We are deluded. We have diminished him and elevated other things. We pursue vanity. I am prone to lift my heart to an idol every day. Every single day. My lips aren't pure. My mind isn't. There is a lack of inward purity in our hearts. And so when David asked the question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? The answer is this, none of us. None of us without preparation. None of us without help. None of us without doing the work required to prepare to be in God's presence and experience Him. David is calling us to deal with the sin and to get honest with the issues in our actions, in our affections, in our attitudes, and in our ambitions. And what we discover in the New Testament is that the heart is purified and the hands are made clean through honest, honest confession and repentance. That's the way. First John, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus, excuse me, if we confess our sins, he is what? And to do what? What's he going to do? forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us. There is no path to clean. There is no path to righteous outside of the road through confession and repentance. There's no path to it. This is why when we gather and pray on Wednesday nights, one of the first prayers we pray are prayers of confessing and prayers of repentance because this is how we prepare this is how we make the heart ready. This is how we make the mind ready. This is how we make the hands ready to engage the presence of God through confession and repentance. But listen, not a single thing in your flesh or in mine wants to do that work. Nothing wants to do that. There was a doctor back in the early 1800s. I'm going to mess his name up, so no judging. His name was Ignaz Semmelweis. And so, if you think you can pronounce that better, give it a go. Uh, 
he was a doctor in uh, Budapest in the early 1800s, and um, Ignaz was born into a world and was a doctor at a time where in that area of Hungary, um, one in six women were dying in childbirth. One in six. And he began to think, this is, these are healthy women who have had healthy pregnancies. And they've had healthy deliveries, but yet somehow out of that delivery, they were developing these fevers that they couldn't uh, remedy, and one in six women were dying in childbirth. And so he began to investigate. He's trying to figure out why would that be the case? Why are so many women passing away that seem healthy? And so in his investigation, he noticed something about their hospital. In their hospital, they had an entire section of male doctors who delivered um, babies, and they had another section that was nothing but midwives, and they delivered babies as well. And he noticed that the women who had their children with midwives were not getting sick and were not dying nearly at the rate as they were with the male doctors. And so he began to try to figure out, well, what's different? Is there something different in their process, something different in what they're doing? And here's what he discovered. Almost every male doctor at that time doubled as a coroner. Doubled as a coroner. So that they doubled by doing autopsies, discovering causes of death, um, figuring out what happened, and they would spend time with these, these bodies that had passed away. And oftentimes they would leave an autopsy or time, and they would go and deliver a baby without washing their hands. Now, remember, it's 1818, right? And he began to discover that. And what was happening is there was bacteria and particles that were being taken from these dead bodies and were getting onto these women during the process of their delivery, and they were getting sick. And so what he did, he created a solution of chlorine and lime water. He created a solution. And he began to wash his hands after every autopsy, scrubbed them. He began to demand that all of his people in his hospital, all of the doctors, wash their hands with this chlorine and lime water before they go into any deliveries. And like this, the death rate went from 1 in 6 to 1 in 50. And he became kind of famous for this, and he would travel and talk to doctors in other areas of the country, and every time he would talk to them, he would end his speech with the same line, which was this, brothers, if we would just but wash our hands. Sin infects. Sin pollutes. Sin is a disease that kills And sin only moves one way. It is only going to progress. They couldn't deal with this fever because they didn't know what it was. When we have sin that goes undealt with, it only moves one way. You don't ever get better at sinning. It separates us from a healthy relationship with God, which means sin is going to hinder God's presence in our life and our experience of spiritual breakthrough. And David knew this, and he's shouting at us from 3,000 years ago, brothers and sisters, if we would just but wash our hands. If we would just deal with the sin in our life. But I want you to notice the promise. I want you to see what God says will happen for those who deal with the attitude, the heart, the, the affection of the soul. He said, this person will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. 
Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. God said, this person's going to live in the blessing of a right relationship with the Lord. And they are going to become a part of a generation that seeks God like never before. Man, I want that for new beginnings. I want this to be the generation that seeks God because we, unlike any generation before, were honest about our sin, willing to deal with it, and let our idols be torn down so that in their place we can have a righteousness and the presence of God. That's what he promises. He says, I'm going to give you righteousness. I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you my presence. What if this room, this generation, right now, what if we were the ones to seek the face of the God of Jacob and really do business with these issues in our life? I want you to look at the last verses of Psalm 24, and we're almost done. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false or swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord in righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So now lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? Oh, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O, you, o gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now, Jewish tradition tells us that on the first day of the week, this psalm would be read or sung in the temple. On their Sunday, on their first day of worship, this song this psalm would be recited by the people as they made their way to encounter the presence of God. On their Sunday, they sang Psalm 24. So just sit with this with me for a minute. The first day of the week, Jesus would go to the temple. He would go to worship. He would go to hear and read the scriptures. He would go to teach, which means every first day of the week as he made his way in and he heard the priest and the people saying, who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. They didn't know they were talking about Jesus, but he did. It was on the first day of the week that Jesus would get on the back of a donkey. And he would make his way up the Temple Mount Road with all of the people yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the son of David. And as he made his way up that road and entered the temple to rid it of what shouldn't be there and reclaim it as a house of prayer, the priest would have been saying, who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Now they didn't know that was Jesus, but he did. It was on the first day of the week that Jesus having been dead for three days having waged war for our souls having, having won the battle over death and over hell having commanded the stone to roll back walked, stepped out of the tomb fully alive and the temple that had been destroyed for three days was rebuilt and as he was resurrecting they were saying who is the king of glory the Lord strong and mighty the Lord mighty in battle he is the king of glory so lift up your head O ye gates and be lifted up you ancient doors that the king of glory may come in when he was resurrecting, they were singing his praises and didn't know it. And I am telling you this morning, if you have not experienced 
salvation, if you cannot identify a moment when your heart has been renewed, the first step for you today is to lift up your heads and let the King of glory come in. That's the first thing. Well, I don't know if that's happened for me. If you've been in a prolonged season of not knowing whether or not you belong to Jesus, can I just help you? You need to come belong to Jesus. Because where the king of glory enters, he changes. Who is the king of glory? It's the Lord, strong, the Lord of hosts. This is Jesus. Maybe today you need to give your heart to the Lord. If you haven't, I want you to come find me on this. For those of us that have, today is, um, this is about preparation. And this moment of response as we sing and as we worship. Uh, is about preparation. So, um, as Philip begins to sing, I'm just going to challenge you to step out and come pray. Come and be honest about sin. If you need to be prayed for, if there's a sin issue, if there's a stronghold, if there's a burden in your life and you don't want to carry it into these 21 days because you need it to be dealt with, come and let's pray for that. Let's pray with you. Come and get on your knees at this altar. Turn around, kneel on the floor, and put your elbows in your seat and begin to beg God to deal with these issues. Who can draw near to God? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. As we worship right now, if you need to give your heart to Jesus, you come. If you just need to come and do business with the Lord, you do that. Let's stand and pray. Father, for the next few moments, we worship you we invite you to search our hearts. Move among us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond.